Um, so as a, just a bit of context, last week Matt was talking about the big idea of Advent, and he said that the word Advent d- is derived from a Latin word that means revival. Hey, can you guys see me? Sweet. <laughs> um, and so the word Advent means arrival. So during this season of Advent or Christmas, we are, we are awaiting Christ's return. We look back to when Jesus came and we use that and we use this season to actually look towards Christ's return. And Matt kind of talked about the reality that not only are we sitting and waiting for Christ's return, but that actually changes the way that we live today. We don't just wait around, you know, closing our fists, hoping that everything's going to be better one of these days, but we actually, it actually changes our posture. It actually changes the way we live our lives today. And as as Ryan was saying, I, I've got the the subject of peace today in the season of Advent. And uh, when I was preparing this message earlier in the week, the message ended up coming out extremely academic. It was super heady. Um, about Wednesday, we do something called the Q, uh, where a group of people come together, and uh, whoever is preaching that Sunday comes and presents the message to the Q, and then they give you constructive criticism, and then you go back to the drawing board sometimes, or sometimes it's great, but it's this beautiful conversation, so that way uh, our preaching doesn't happen in, um, like, all alone. It actually happens in community. And during the Q, I had presented this this message, and it was, it was really academic. It was really, it was really heady. Um, and, and the reason I think I went with the academic route is because I'm actually working through peace in my life as well right now. And it was easier for me to have an academic sermon prepared for you guys, uh, for me to theologize my way through understanding peace than it was to actually have a conversation about peace. And maybe some of you guys are here in the room feel that same way, um, that it's, it's easy to talk about peace. It's easy to um, kind of theologize our way through understanding peace and how it affects our lives or the fact that we don't actually feel peace in our lives right now. Um, but I, I hope, my, my hope and my prayer for many of us, especially in the Christmas season where um, it's supposed to be a time of joy and, and thanksgiving, um, but oftentimes it brings back hard memories of the past. Um, it brings up anxiety, depression even, um, loneliness. And this Christmas season, I really think that peace is going to speak deeply to us. And not only that, but my, my hope is that for this morning, for today, that the peace of Christ, His presence, would just wash over us in this room. That we would begin to experience His peace even now. So the big idea for today is that the way of the kingdom, the way of peace, it's a promised future, but it's also a present posture for our lives. And the only way we are going to experience that peace is actually through the presence of Christ. So the the way of the kingdom is the way of peace. It is a future promise, but it's also a present posture. And the path to peace can only 
occur through the presence of Christ in our lives. So as a bit of a framework, we're going to look at a big picture understanding of how God's presence fills the earth and brings us peace. And then we're going to look at a few moments where we see this happening within the scriptures. And then we're going to talk about how that actually applies to our lives. Does that sound okay? Sweet. All right. Isaiah chapter 11. Turn your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 11. If you don't have your Bibles with you, there's some boxes with hardback black ones around the room, so you can grab one of those. Or if you'd prefer the electronic version, you can download an app, or it's going to be on the Sky Bible above me. So whatever works for you guys, let's read Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 10 together. I'll read it quickly real quick. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity from for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and the little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. On that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples? Of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. This is the word of the the Lord out of Isaiah chapter 11. So in context, we have the Assyrian Empire that has come and taken over the Israelite nation. So we have this picture almost of a tree that is strong, the the cedars of Lebanon, the Israelite nation that's been hewed over by the Israelites or by the Assyrians. So the power is no longer there. They're, They're weak, they're feeble, they're captive. And then that segues us into... Isaiah chapter 11, it says in verse 1, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from its roots shall bear fruit. We're given this image of a tree stump, right? Powerless, worthless, no longer beautiful, no longer a tree where things can rest in the shade of its branches but an insignificant stump. And from this tree stump, there seems to be this new branch that's coming from the apparently dead stump. And this tree stump has a designation, right? It's the stump of Jesse. Now, Jesse was the less royal 
less prestigious father of King David. In fact, we really don't know much about Jesse except for the fact that he was David's father. Why would Isaiah choose to use Jesse's name rather than David when describing the coming of this king? Perhaps it was to reveal the humility and meekness of our coming king. There's this subversive and upside down and almost, and almost unexpected way of the coming king and its kingdom, his kingdom. There's this beautiful character of our king being revealed. Humility, meekness. Verse 2. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. It says that the spirit of the Lord rests upon him. Now, this is a phrase that Isaiah uses a few times throughout his book. It's in Isaiah 61 and a couple other places. And Jesus in Luke 4 actually quotes this phrase quoting the full Isaiah 61. He says that the spirit of the Lord is upon me. So Jesus saw himself as the fulfillment to this promise. Listen again to the things that describe the character of our king. He's, it's the spirit of wisdom and understanding. He has the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. This king has everything he needs to bring this world back to the fullness of the knowledge of him. Verse three, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. I wanna read that line one more time. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or describe disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness, he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. I love that line in verse 3. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. This king, Jesus, it is his delight to stand in awe of God. It is his deep pleasure to remain in submission to the one who holds the universe together, who rules with perfection. This makes our king so trustworthy. His delight is in the fear of the Lord. He is not concerned with the opinions of man, but his delight is actually in the fear of the Lord, not in the opinions of others. So verses one through five give us this this beautiful picture of the character of our king, right? So he's, he's humble, he's competent, he's powerful, he's trustworthy, he's righteous, he's good. And as we begin to understand the character of our king, we will better understand the way of his kingdom. And so in verses 6 through 10, that's what it begins to describe. If 1 through 5 is the character of our king, then 6 through 10 is actually the way of his kingdom. So let's continue on in verse 6. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, 
and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and the little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all of my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea." What an incredible perspective of our kingdom. This kingdom, it's a completely new way of living. We have this picture of of predator and prey lying down together in unity, of eating together. Not only is the predator not devouring its prey, but the prey seems to have enough peace to be able to, and confidence to lie down with its predator And then the child is amidst all of them playing around, playing with the snake, leading the lion and the lamb around, the leopard, the wolf. The summary of this little moment can be found in verse 9. It says, They shall not hurt or destroy in my holy mountain. The forces that produce the shame, hurt, pain, disdain, anxiety, depression, worry, destruction, they are all gone in this new world, in this new kingdom. This is a kingdom of peace. The way of the kingdom is a way of peace. So how does this kingdom come about? If you continue on in verse 9, it actually shows us, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So this kingdom, it's, it's a global kingdom, and it's affecting, affecting even nature, so as that the animals seem to be lying down and in peace with each other. There's peace in all of creation. Nothing is left untouched. The earth will be full of what? Full of what? The knowledge of the Lord. So where does this knowledge of the Lord come from? If we connect it back to verse 2, it says, there's this description of our king. It says that he has the spirit of the fear of the knowledge of the Lord, right? So it is the spirit of the king. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. It's so palpable, so pervasive, so present, so powerful. The presence of Christ fills the earth as the waters cover the sea, it changes everything. The way of the kingdom is the way of peace. And this path to peace can only come as Christ's presence fills the earth. The way of the kingdom is the way of peace. The king that the prophet Isaiah speaks of, Jesus, He came 2,000 years ago, initiating his mission of peace, his presence throughout the world. 
And he died and resurrected, bringing us into right relationship with God. He ascended into heaven and he gave us his spirit so that we might carry his peace throughout the entire world. And one day he will come again. Look at verse 10. It says, In that day the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. One day he will come again, and there will be perfect peace. There will be no more pain, suffering, shame, anxiety, guilt. There will be peace. So this, guys, this is the big picture. This is what we have to look forward to. And there's many moments throughout the whole of Scripture that reveal this picture of peace, God's presence coming into the world. But as I was preparing this message, a couple came to mind, and I felt like the Lord laid them on my heart. So the first one comes out of Luke 2, and it starts in verse 8. It's that story of the shepherds and the angels coming. And so the angels announce the coming of the king to who? Shepherds. The funny thing about this is that shepherds were outcasts in their culture. So they were... They, they were considered, like, you could not trust them. They were considered thieves and manipulators, liars. They were filthy. They worked with sheep. They actually were not able to give an account in court because they weren't trusted. So it's interesting that this announcement is actually made to shepherds, Right? But this begins to kind of make sense as we look back to Isaiah 11, the shoot of Jesse, the father of David, this unexpected entrance of the king announcing himself to shepherds. It's the character and heart of God on display. And then you continue on, they describe this coming king, they describe Jesus, they say that he'll be savior, that he'll be Christ, Messiah, the one that they had been hoping for, that he would be Lord, he'd be king, he'd be God. And then the the way that they describe him is quite interesting. He's a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. There seems to be this unexpected subversive, upside-down way of the kingdom and the procession of this king. I love how 2 Corinthians 8-9 puts it. Just listen to this and let it wash over you. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you might, by his poverty, become rich. Wow. And through him, we can experience the riches of his grace and peace. So they announce his coming, and then they begin to sing. And what do they say? They say, glory to God in the highest and peace on earth. So they're pointing back to this moment in Isaiah and, the, and the, the shepherds heard this, and I love what happens next. Look at uh, Luke 2, verse 15 through 16 for a second with me. We'll read this together. Luke 2, verse 15 through 16. This is what happens next. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one, other, one another, let's go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened. 
to which the Lord has made known to us. I love that they recognize that even though it was the angels that had presented this to them, that they knew that this was like a promise that the Lord had presented them. The message that they had heard was important. There was value to it enough where they recognized that this was from God. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. Now we can just glance over these two verses and miss what's going on here. Think about like what instructions were they given to go search for this, for this king? I mean, that he was in the city of David, so he was in Bethlehem, right? But the, the only instructions, the only specifics they were given were that he was a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes lying in a manger. They weren't told where. They were outside of the city, and they had to go in searching. These are, these are scrappers. It's the middle of the night. So just imagine these rugged dudes walking around a neighborhood at night, cigarette in hand, knocking on doors and saying, is there a baby in here? Like, it's kind of like, I mean, this is, this is the moment. This is what we've got, this picture of them searching, right? And they didn't have any details. They didn't have like the, the specifics. Oftentimes, we get caught up in the specifics, the theology, the details when trying to find our way back to God, right? Even to the point where it like stops us in our tracks, I don't understand this yet, or I don't have answers that I, that I need yet, God. But that didn't stop the shepherds. Why? Because the gospel of peace was enough. Why? Because all of the promises that they had been told were coming true. Let me say that again. All of the promises were coming true. There were literally hundreds of prophecies that were being fulfilled in this moment. Hundreds of them. Everything that they had been hoping for. Everything that they had been longing for. The lion and the lamb, the wolf, the child, the serpent, all lying together. Peace had come. The gospel of peace was enough. Is it enough for you today? Is it enough? So if you continue on, I love the way this story wraps up. So they, they approach Jesus. There's this amazement by what's going on. And I think half of the amazement is because it was coming from shepherds. Like these people that they usually don't trust are now like praising the, the king of the universe that's in like bodily form. But they were amazed. And it says that Mary treasures all these things in her heart. And then they return back to the sheep praising God. Now, it's interesting, though, that from the context of the rest of the gospel narrative, it seems like we might be able to conclude that the shepherd's faith was actually short-lived. So what do I mean? Well, they return, and then they start praising God, but then you never in the rest of the gospels have this story of shepherds 30 years later coming and saying, we've been waiting for this moment, Jesus. We're finally glad that you're starting your ministry. No, this is the last moment where we see the shepherds in the story, right? But, but Mary follows Christ to the cross. So what's different? I think verse 9 actually speaks to this moment, or 19 speaks to that. 
It says that Mary treasured all these things in her heart. She lets this gospel of peace, this experience, actually transform her heart. We can all relate to that, where the good news sounds really good in the moment, or maybe even this message will sound encouraging to you in the moment, and we can go on about our day. Maybe it'll last the the whole Christmas season and maybe kind of spill over into New Year's resolutions, but then we'll realize that it's relatively short-lived. Are we allowing this gospel of peace to actually transform our hearts? There's another moment I think of in, in the Bible when it's talking about peace entering the world. It's actually in Revelation chapter 21. This is the culmination of, of all things, the end when everything is made right. So Revelation chapter 21, starting in verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. This is the end of the big picture. This is the full actualization of the kingdom of peace coming into the world. This is Jesus' presence filling the earth. But there's something that I want us to notice. Here in verse 3, it says that his dwelling place, is the place that he makes his home, is with his people, right? Now, remembering back to Isaiah chapter 11, verse 10, Isaiah says that his dwelling place will be what? glorious. So putting these two notions of his dwelling place together, we actually come to a profound reality that as Christ's glorious presence fills the earth, he creates a resting place among his people. And as Christ makes his home in us, we will find our home, our rest, our peace in him. Our peace is found in his presence. All will be made right. Equality will fill the earth. All of Jesus' wisdom, justice, mercy, counsel, and might will be released into the world, and there will be a new way of life. No more destruction, no more pain. There will be rest and peace. We will be home. So guys, we we have the full picture, right? We have God's strategic manifesto for how he is going to fill the earth with his presence. Isaiah and the prophets saw what was to come. Jesus came and he has never faltered from his mission. And we know the end result. Peace through his presence. Christ's kingdom, the kingdom of his glory, the kingdom of his rest and peace is established through his presence. The earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord, the spirit of the king, as the waters cover the sea. Now, again, God's plan for us 
is not for us to just endure conflict and pain and suffering here and now, just pushing through it, bearing through it while we await a kingdom of peace in the future. It's actually a stewardship. The way of the kingdom is the way of peace. And that peace is not just a promised future, but a present posture. Have you ever noticed that even though we have the full story, it's easy for us to take matters into our own hands, right? It's easy for us to not live into this peace in the here and now. Why? Well, maybe it's because we don't feel like we're experiencing this peace in the world that we live in, right? If Jesus truly knew peace when he was living on earth, it wasn't because of his circumstances. It was actually in direct contrast to the world around him. John 14, 27, Jesus says this, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Jesus was the embodiment of true peace, yet the peace that they hoped for actually never came. They were in captivity. The Israelite nation was no longer what it once had been, and they were hoping that a Messiah, a Savior, a King would come, and, and bringing his kingdom into the world would reestablish the Israelite nation and placing them in prominence back into the world. But this peace never came. Our attempts to obtain peace have actually come up short, right? For example, so technology, globalization, the increase in affluence, the development of knowledge. Or here, let's make this personal. What are some of the ways that like, we have tried to obtain peace in our lives? Obtaining the right job, climbing the ladder of success, increased salary, building a family, weekend getaways, that extra hour of sleep, am I right? We have this longing to build something of ourselves. Our families, our careers, our lives. Why? Perhaps it's because we think that it will relieve us from the fear of not doing anything significant with our lives. And that in doing so, that it will actually give us this sense of peace to our, our hope and our purpose. These things may promise peace, but they will always bring us back wanting more. My peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. This peace, the peace that Jesus brings, would never come to us the way that we would expect. It never has. The stump of Jesse to shepherds, an impoverished baby. The peace that he brings would never come to us the way that we would expect. Guys, there is a peace that can only be obtained, only be experienced through the presence of Christ in our lives from him breaking into the darkest pastures of our souls and filling it with his glorious light. The things of this world may promise peace, but only Jesus promised to be our peace. There's this moment where Jesus is talking to his disciples and he says something rather odd. He says, 
I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Now, that sounds like it's in direct contradiction to what we've just read, and my peace I give to you, right? So what is Jesus getting at? What is he saying? See, Jesus knew in order for the world to experience peace, that it would not come without a fight. And we only have to look at our warrior king's scars to know that he has actually brought us this peace. Through his death and resurrection, he took on the violence of the world so that the world may receive his peace. And this is the peace that he is giving to you. Jesus says, do not let your hearts be troubled or afraid. He points out the two things that seem to rob us of our peace. Whether we use the language of stress or anxiety, troubled hearts, worry is the thing that seems to fill so much of our lives in our present culture, right? But worry projects a negative worldview of the way around us. And anxiety under that, under that umbrella is actually an act of faith. What, what do I mean by that? So anxiety is actually seated in deep, deep belief of worst-case scenarios. It actually takes a great measure of faith to be anxious. And I, this, may, this may be for some of you in the room, but as I was praying this morning, I felt like the Lord really laid this on my heart. Like, um, for some of us that experience great measures of anxiety, where anxiety feels overwhelming at times, God may have gifted you with a great measure of faith. But the enemy wants to use that for, for destruction. Recognize that if you can have these deep moments of anxiety, that God can use that for his good. Worry is rooted in reality, but it, it doesn't affect our reality. I love the way Paul addresses this to the Philippians in uh, chapter four of the book of Philippians. It says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say rejoice. Let, not your, or let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Or I love the way that Eugene Peterson puts it. He says, celebrate God all day, every day. I mean, revel in him. Make it as clear as you can to all you meet that you are on their side working with them and not against them. Help them see that the master, what the master is about to, or that the master is about to arrive. He could show up any minute. Do not fret or worry. Instead of worrying, pray. Let petitions and praises shape your worries into prayers. Letting God know your concerns before you know it. A sense of God's wholeness, everything coming together for good, will come and settle you down. It's wonderful what happens when Christ displaces worry at the center of your life. Paul says, do not be anxious about anything. But the irony of this is that we're typically anxious about nothing, or at least nothing that's in our control, right? If fear has an object, 
Let me explain what I mean. So if fear has an object, it's usually particular. There's something in reality that we're afraid of. Then anxiety is the fear without a direct object. Anxiety is the fear of something out of our control. And Paul's solution, his remedy is simple. He says, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. It seems as though Paul is telling us that anxiety, depression, troubled hearts, worry, and the things alike, they come into our lives when we choose and try to control the things that are outside of our control. We become anxious because we have not learned to trust. Now, I don't want to say that we just need to trust God more. You know, that's a really weak view of the, the depravity, the destruction, the chaos in our world, the brokenness in our world. I don't know if you've ever been here, but I mean, I, I, I wish I could stand here before you and tell you that I am someone who has discovered and realized true inner peace, but I'm not. What happens when you believe in Jesus and you haven't experienced this peace? What does it mean when you believe that Jesus is your peace, but you have not experienced this peace in your life? Often when anxiety and depression is running rampant in my own life, I end up like retreating. I'll reduce the amount of things in my life. I'll retract in order to gain some semblance of control over my life again, right? In the world where everyone seems to have at least a small amount of anxiety in their lives, we, we often tr try to retreat or eliminate hustle and, and things in our lives. And now this is good. Like, creating a season of rest for our lives, eliminating, reducing, those, those things can be good, but we need to check our motives. Are we simply just trying to gain control of our lives again, or are we truly learning how to rest in his presence? Have you ever heard someone say, you know, I, 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 there's just so much on my plate right now, I, and why would God do that to me? God never gives us more than we can handle. Or maybe you've said something like that. Like, I don't know if that's necessarily true. No, God doesn't give you less than you can handle. Like, at least in my own experience, I've experienced more than I can handle, so God must not be giving me less than I can handle. Why would you ever want God to give you less than you can handle? You were made for more. The power of God courses through your veins. His destiny is within you. You were made for more. Why would you want God to give or require less of your life and leave no room for his presence? No, God oftentimes requires more of our lives so that through his presence and through his peace, we could go to places that we could never go alone. The path to peace does not come from gaining control over our lives, but relinquishing control. Everything in your life that is outside of your control, that you try to control, will steal your peace. You must choose to take control of what you can and let go of what you cannot. Peace will not come from eliminating uncertainty. Peace comes 
because you have clarity about what's important. Peace comes when you stop trying to take control of the world around you and in submission to Christ's presence, his power, his authority in your life. He establishes peace in your soul. And then in turn, you begin to take responsibility for the world within you. So peace does not come when we choose to take control of the world around us. But through Christ's peace, we can actually take control of the world within us. Jesus says, do not let your hearts be troubled. We cannot control the world around us, but we can, through his presence in peace, begin to choose how we respond to the world around us. And with his peace, like Christ, we can respond to the world differently. We no longer give to the world as the world gives, right? And we can respond to the world as Jesus described or instructed his disciples to respond. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. The reality of, peace, of the peace of Christ in our lives means that we can be carriers of peace to this city. How might this city change if we chose to step into a posture of peace rather than living with a reactionary posture? Instead of retaliating at the sign of a broken world, we responded with grace, with generosity, with patience, with prayer, with peace. I think of Paul in prison in a moment where he could have chosen to step into a posture of worry, anxiety, frustration, he, but he worshiped, right? He prayed. And when the power of God shook the prison doors open, in his peace, he did not take advantage of his freedom and run out. No, the peace of Christ actually enabled him to give up his freedom. Wow. And so when the prison guard thought that everything was over, his life was coming to an end because he had lost all of his captives, Paul was like, no, 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 we're still here. And how, how did the prison guard respond to the peace of Christ in someone's life? What must I do to be saved? What happens when we become carriers of peace to this city? It's simple. They begin to experience the peace that we have come to know and hold so dear. Do you need this peace today? And maybe you're like, oh man, I don't know if I could actually understand how to carry peace right now. I just need to figure out how to like, receive it. 
Do you need this peace today? The answer is Christ's presence in your life. Peace comes when we give up control. The way of the kingdom is the way of peace. And this peace is not only a promised future, but a present posture. And this path to peace will only come through the presence of Christ in our lives. So to close, and the band can start coming up now, um, but to close, we're going to go through a time of reflection, meditation, and I, and I hope that the peace of Christ will just flood our ho- hearts tonight, or this morning. And I just, yeah, yeah, and we're going we're gonna to take some time of reflection, and I'm going to kind of lead us and guide us through a moment where we can just experience Christ's presence. Um, so if you would close your eyes with me. Get comfortable. Don't want there to be the cramp while you're just sitting there. As you're sitting with your eyes closed, begin to listen to the sounds you hear around you and the world around you. The creaking of the chairs the movement as people begin to settle in. As it becomes more and more still, we'll hear the air conditioning, or I hope it's the heater right now. (laughs) And as we begin to listen to the world around us, begin to hear the world within you. Listen to your breathing. Some of us might actually begin to hear our heartbeat. And as we breathe in and out, remember that the word for spirit in the Bible is also the word for breath. So as you're breathing in and out, in and out, Recognize that God is even sustaining your breath in this moment, that he is present. He is closer than your breath. And in your mind's eye as you're sitting there, across from you is Jesus. And he says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. He's giving you this peace in this moment. Father, I pray that the peace of Christ that surpasses all understanding would guard our hearts and minds. Um, God, there are people that have had um, hard weeks. (laughs) I've had a hard week, Lord. I pray that your peace would wash over me, that it would wash over the people in this room that are in desperate need. 
of release, of healing, Lord. I pray that you just let your presence, let your peace fill this room as the waters cover the sea. Thank you, Lord, for your peace. Thank you that we can hope for your coming where all things will be restored. But thank you for the peace that you can give us through your presence, Father. In your holy, 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 heavenly name we pray. Amen.